What an interesting energy this morning. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is January 28th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hello. How are you, Sarah? I'm good. How are you on this lovely I'm, Tuesday? I'm great. You're sitting to uh, my right in the studio today as off. opposed to the left, and it's 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 not throwing me off, though. I like the, the change in pace. You know, I like to shake things up yeah. every once in a while, confuse myself, not know where I am. I think it's good. Jeff is out this week, but later in the show, we'll be joined by 538 football writer and analyst Josh Hermsmeyer. Over the weekend, the sports world was rocked by the news that Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna Bryant, and seven others were killed in a helicopter accident. Bryant spent his 20-year career with the Los Angeles Lakers, winning five NBA championships. He was an all-star 18 times, and he took home the league MVP award in 2008. Neil, Kobe was an icon to many people across the world, but current players are feeling it especially hard. Yeah, and I think that was one of the big takeaways from sort of as the news spread uh, and in the immediate wake of things on Sunday and, and into the week was just how much of an impact he had and influence he had on this current generation of players. And um, we had this stat in in our colleague Chris Herring's story about Kobe that um, the average player was three years old when Kobe debuted and they were 22 when he retired. So basically their entire formative years – oh, and they were 16 when he um, won his last championship. So to, to them, it makes total sense. They like he is their Michael Jordan. He yeah. was like the guy that, that um, loomed over the game their entire formative years of, of growing up and playing basketball. And that's why you saw, you know, dribbling out the or just not even taking a shot, you know, for 24 seconds right. in honor of uh, Kobe um, in, in some of the games on Sunday. And then, you know, they've canceled games also. And, and I, I want to also point out that UConn had a tribute to Gianna. Uh, she was sort of a huge UConn fan, almost presumed to be on track to join the Husky when she uh, went to college. And so I think that is, you know, such a tragic thing to come out of this was just not getting to see where her talent would take her. She uh, so clearly loved basketball. And, you know, the the video that had just like just circulated last week of Kobe and Gianna sitting courtside, you know, looking like they were breaking down a play together. Um, I think that's hit people pretty hard too, seeing that and then realizing we've lost what she might have brought to the basketball world too. Kobe was beloved by many as a basketball icon, but of course his life off the court was complicated to say the least. It's been difficult for me personally to process the many facets of his public life. So we at Hot Takedown felt that in order to properly grapple with the full story of Kobe Bryant, we wanted to wait until a bit more time had passed and the the grief for everyone was a little less raw. So we'll plan to have a more nuanced conversation about Bryant in the weeks to come. So on today's show, we'll preview this Sunday's Super Bowl matchup between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. We'll take a look at the new frontier of analytics in the NFL and how it may shape the league in the future. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. 
Super Bowl weekend is finally here, and to break it all down, we're joined by 538 football analyst Josh Hermsmeyer. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be in studio with you guys. My goodness. Yeah, so exciting. So fun to have you here. This is amazing. This Sunday, the Kansas City Chiefs and San Francisco 49ers will face off in Super Bowl 54 in Miami. The highly anticipated matchup is set to feature the Niners' impressive defense against the dynamic Chiefs' offense. While the 49ers are one-point underdogs, that didn't stop Kyle Brandt on Good Morning Football from making the case for not only the Niners, but specifically the talent of quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo. You know who I think is really going to surprise people on Super Bowl Sunday? Jimmy Garoppolo, how good he is. There's an argument over the last couple of weeks. I see it on our show. I see it on other shows. Can the Niners count on Garoppolo? Will will he wet himself on a big stage? I think it's nonsense. Tell me someone who's better prepared than Garoppolo, than a guy who's been to a Super Bowl multiple times on the sideline, who has a genius head coach. And there's some myths about Jimmy Garoppolo this year. You know, they say, well, you know, in the regular season, the Niners run the ball. Jimmy Garoppolo has more passing touchdowns than Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, and Patrick Mahomes. There's also this, you know, in the regular season, Jimmy Garoppolo's not that accurate. Jimmy Garoppolo has a higher completion percentage than Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson, and Patrick Mahomes. Jimmy Garoppolo checks it down, though. This offense is short and everything. Jimmy Garoppolo has higher yards per attempt than Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, and Patrick Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, they may have to rely on Jimmy Garoppolo, and they can count on him. He's never been more prepared. He's never prepared better. He's never played better. He's beaten the big ones, and I think he can beat this one. Just don't be surprised when it happens. Neil, our model doesn't like the 49ers as, as much as Vegas does. We have them as a as 3.5-point underdogs with a 37% chance to win. Our model is even more down on Garoppolo, who has a quarterback ELO rating of 133 to the 279 of Patrick Mahomes. So where do you think Kyle Brandt's argument is coming from? Part of it, I think, is is really fun where he sort of, you know, compares the passing touchdown to a certain group and then the completion percentage to a certain group. Uh, and it's it's one of these old tricks where you can kind of make a player look good by comparing him to other players at the same time and then just take, like, the weakest aspect of those players and compare it uh, favorably to the one of the best aspects of uh, the player that you want to make look better. So I think there's a little bit of that going on, uh, which is fun. And I can kind of also see where he's coming from. So if you look at Garoppolo's just top line numbers uh, for the season, he had pretty good numbers. You know, first of all, he went 13 and three. There's, uh, you know, nothing to complain about that. But he had a 69% completion percentage, a 102 quarterback rating. So I think superficially, uh, and he was one of the league leaders in yards per attempt, which I think is one of the biggest things that sort of is driving the argument in favor of Garoppolo. Uh, But if you look at some of the other things that sort of not got neglected to be mentioned, especially in comparison with Patrick Mahomes, Garoppolo had nearly three times as many interceptions per attempt, over twice as many sacks every time that he dropped back. Uh, and that's why a, a maybe better stat like total QBR from ESPN has Mahomes ranked first if you include the playoffs in the league and uh, Jimmy G only 13th. And that's before you even get into some of the stuff like workload, like the 49ers, only 59% of their yards were gained through the air this year, which is the second fewest in the league, 74% of the Chiefs' yards were gained through passing, uh, which ranked sixth in the league. Uh, and then Garoppolo has been kind of cold going into the Super Bowl. He hasn't had an especially 
great game in terms of both efficiency and volume since early December. So I think all those things are kind of playing together uh, to cause that huge gulf in ELO compared with maybe if you just looked at yards per attempt or something like that. I mean, Garoppolo did complete 75% of his passes against the Packers. That's true, yes. Six for eight. Of those eight (laughs) passes, he completed six. (laughs) What's your take on Garoppolo, Josh? I think Garoppolo is, you know, obviously a serviceable quarterback. I think he's great when you can put him in situations where he can excel like play action. Uh, He did fantastic all year doing that. In fact, his biggest weakness, though, is when you you bring a blitz on him, when you make him make – uh, decisions under duress. And so I think, you know, getting pressure on him is going to be key. But going back to kind of what this quote was saying about these, these stats, I just, I, each one of them is flawed. And, and, uh, and just in, in the ones he chose to, uh, chose to highlight, you know, passing touchdowns, raw touchdowns. It's just a, a terrible way to judge, uh, uh, quarterbacks. I mean, you've got, you've got a completion percentage. We have a better version of that now. Adjusted completion percentage or CPOE over expected. So you can compare them to the field. Garoppolo was ninth in the league. Uh, in the regular season in that metric. So uh, I think that they're just, we're, we're, we're slowly making progress, especially in the media, uh, about how to uh, kind of use proper metrics, stats in a way that's actually reflective of performance on the field. And uh, the, the closer we get and the sooner we get to that world where we use stats correctly, I think the more accepted they'll become in football. I just so often we're just using them poorly and, and they blow up because they're not telling the correct story. So we touched on this a bit last week, but our model has been, pretty consistently seeing the Niners as as an underdog. Should our line be closer to the betting line? Are we off there? I think it's nearly impossible to beat Vegas consistently. And I think, you know, you guys, Neil and Jay and you uh, and Nate have all been really open about ELO and its ability to, to defeat Vegas on average. You know, I, I don't think I think that there are things uh, that the market is able to capture that we're unable to do with pure numbers. So um, the market definitely has a small edge, but I don't. I think in this case, it's directionally correct. I think that the Mahomes and the Chiefs are substantially better than the 49ers, and I think that there might be some overweighting going on right now for uh, you know some recent rushing performances, <laughs> and also maybe perhaps an overweighting a defense. To that point, do you think part of the difference is because we just don't have a reliable way to assess defense or defenses are just really inconsistent and that might kind of bring down the Niners as being the defensive team of the two teams in this matchup? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And, and it's not, we, you know, perhaps you hear once, a, once in a while around the analytics community with football, the defense doesn't matter. What it's talking about is our inability to actually measure defense in a way that matters. It's not that defense itself doesn't matter. I mean, defense is half the game. It's ridiculous, but we're just unable to capture that in, in, in numbers in a way that allows us to make, you know, informed predictions about what's going to happen in, in, in a season, much less a game. So if you're going to be responsible about, you know, Here's what I'm going to forecast. Here's what's reliable. I think that uh, the thing to do is to downweight defense, to downweight rushing. And when you're facing the best quarterback in the league, I think, um, uh, in, in Patrick Mahomes, a guy who is not only statistically brilliant, but creates on the field with an artistry we haven't seen in years and, and generations, maybe, to say that the scheme and the defense of the Niners are going to overcome this thing that we do know is actually generalizable. They can t- you can take a performance from a season or a game in the passing game and say, yeah, that's probably going to carry forward to the next team, whereas a strong rushing performance doesn't quite carry over to the next opponent the same way. 
Do you think that that inconsistency in defense is like just inherent to the fact that defense is about reacting to what the offense is doing? And so that there might be like a even no matter how good our analytics get, there might be a limit to how well we could predict it. Or do you think it's just a matter of like defense is comparatively behind in terms of measurements relative to offense? I think both. Um, I mean, you, you do a lot of other sports, uh, and Neil, and, and, and it's, it's always lagging, right? The yeah, it's always the lagging thing. Yeah, it's just the hardest thing to get right. And I don't think we've had the data for a long time. And now we're finally getting some of it with the NGS and, um, you know, some promising metrics are coming out. We just did, uh, I just did an article kind of dissecting and, and exploring one of them, um, that, Basically took completion probability and then the nearest defender and said, you know, how much over or above expected was that defender um, when when targeted. The problem is, is that while it may describe performance on the field certain times, it's not something, again, that tends to uh, project forward into the future. So we're still stuck in this place where we we could say the Niners were a great defense, right? Like uh, I think objectively most league observers would agree with that, but – it's harder for us to measure it than with offense, and it's certainly harder for us to uh, say it's going to continue. Given that, that we don't, we know this about the Niners, we don't know how they will specifically perform against the Chiefs. Is there anything we can take from their previous performance that we do know that they'll, you know, anything about their scheme that should help them in this game? Or are we really approaching it blindly? I think that they're a zone scheme because they're trying to protect um, a great player, a still great player in Richard Sherman, but a, a guy that doesn't have the speed to keep up with, say, oh, Michael Hardman or Tyreek Hill, or maybe even, and certainly doesn't have the size to keep up with Kelsey, so he'll just box him out. So I think that there are matchup issues that San Francisco is contending with, and I, everyone has to contend with when they're facing the Chiefs. And I think those are real. You know, I think that, you know, accounting for those is going to require creativity in, in the, uh, in the 49ers scheme. And they're not a team that blitzes very often. I think they were one of the lowest blitz rates in the league. And if, I think if we see them blitz Mahomes, if they're unable to get pressure, um, with their front four or with their base defenses, um, and they have to bring extra men, that means there's going to be guys in single coverage. And I think that's a, a recipe for disaster against Mahomes. And so, yeah, those are the those are the aspects of the kind of the matchup and defense that I think we should we, we can look at and maybe project forward. But again, the, I don't think the numbers help us too much there. I'm interested too in the pass rush. This is something that the Niners have been good at. Whether they can get pressure on Mahomes, whether that will matter. How good is Mahomes under pressure? So I was just looking up this split in um, QBR uh, this exact morning, uh, and so when he's blitzed. He had he was in the 90th percentile of QBR. Garoppolo, as a comparison point, again only in the 62nd percentile. Also, when under pressure, Mahomes was in the 100th percentile. He was the very best, uh, had the best QBR in the entire league under pressure. And again, Garoppolo in the 69th percentile. The only thing that really surprised me in these splits was that Garoppolo was actually slightly better in QBR out of the pocket, which is not what you would really expect based on just Mahomes' sheer ability to make plays happen when kind of scrambling around. But I do think in general, yeah, the numbers kind of bear out that the better passer under pressure, the better in a pure pocket also is Mahomes. It, it might just be that he's a better quarterback than Jimmy Garoppolo. Wow. <laughs> yeah, what, a, what a concept. <laughs> So the the other the other thing that the Niners are pretty um, known for being good at is the other thing that we uh, sort of don't value as highly in analytics. They're very highly reliant on their rushing game. Josh, are the Niners 
talented enough in the in the in the right ways that they're over they're able to overcome these like kind of structural inefficiencies or are they sort of a repudiation of how we think a team should be built I have I have heard that 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 latter point made that perhaps their repudiation of the idea that uh, you know passing is the way to win or at least in the playoffs right something changes something magic some some switch flips in the playoffs and the calendar suddenly, changes to yeah, January yeah the, <laughs> the physics of football no longer apply and 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 I think what's interesting is I I kind of consider the idea that uh, that rushing is is more important in the playoffs um, to be true um, to the extent that if if you can, as, as an offense, average more than five yards of play against a defense, you should, you should run all the time, right? Um, if you can average 10 yards like the Niners did for most of the game, um, against Green Bay, you should, you should run even more than all the time if that's possible. So, um, I, I think that there's, there's definitely a reason why teams gear up to stop the run. It's because they need to keep their opponent into sub five on average, uh, per rush. And, and, and so that's table stakes. And that's why we see it consistently across the league that, that almost all teams are able to achieve that. And so when you go into the playoffs and you see a team actually, you know, exceed those figures and, and really dominate on the ground, I think sometimes we as observers kind of look at that and we overweight. We say, hey, wow, they were dominated physically. There was nothing they could do. Perhaps that's something about this rushing attack that's just really intrinsic. And how are you going to defend against that? And, and really, I think we're, what we're actually seeing is a game plan, you know, something that was just working in a specific situation, um, you know, especially with, with, with Shanahan and his outside zone and his wide zone scheme. Um, he creates angles for his fast running backs, some of the fastest running backs in the league who are also happen to be undrafted free agents. <laughs> but some of the fastest running backs in the league, he opens these holes for them and they can hit them very, very hard, very, very fast. In fact, Raheem Mostert um, was second in the league uh, in miles per hour crossing the line of scrimmage on average. Um, I think he was behind just Lamar Jackson. And Lamar, you know, obviously he had a head start and even wider holes. But I, I think that that's the key to uh, to rushing game is if you can open holes and you have fast athletic backs to take advantage of them, then then definitely run as much as you can. The the rub obviously always is can you can do it consistently and really any team can stop the run. You just need to bring enough guys up towards the box. And then the next step in that, obviously, uh, that chess match is then can you take advantage of it with your quarterback? And and I think that's the question. That's the question of this Super Bowl. Is Jimmy G good enough to take advantage? So in the AFC Championship game, the Chiefs were able to stop another really strong run game, that of Tennessee. Derrick Henry had looked invincible in the postseason up to that point. Neil, should we expect the Chiefs to be able to do something similar to the Niners? I'm not totally sure. And part of it is, to your point, Josh, that the the way the 49ers run is fundamentally pretty different from the way Tennessee was running the ball in the sense that Tennessee just you know relied on Derrick Henry uh, as being this like incredible just running back, you know, a massive human being, 6'3", 247, can run a 4.5 second 40, uh, and they just pounded the ball up the middle. They were, they didn't usually care how many defenders were in the box. I think Kansas City changed that up a little bit and actually were able to slow them down. But uh, the way San Francisco runs is a little bit more to the outside. It's more based on speed uh, than power. And um, even though Raheem Mostert ran for 220 yards, which is insane in that game against the Packers this was kind of a running back by committee uh, team for most of the year they had three guys who picked up between 500 and 800 yards on the ground this season so 
it's a different kind of matchup. And maybe when we're trying to kind of look at how uh, a team will perform, uh, especially on defense, maybe it's better to generalize from sort of like how they did against the rest of the league rather than uh, looking at, you know, one specific game. And in general, the Chiefs just didn't have a very good run defense this season. They were 28th in expected points allowed after adjusting for schedule uh, compared with average. So for me, maybe that is sort of the sign that, if things go really well for San Francisco on the ground, and it's very possible that they will, that does set up this kind of virtuous cycle for them where, like you were talking about, Josh, they can get Garoppolo into favorable down and distance situations. They can get him with play action and and kind of exploit what Kansas City tries to do to slow down the run. And that's a situation that I think is the way San Francisco is going to win. It's an interesting point where we, I think we as football watchers are always trying to like compare this thing that's coming to some previous thing that can give us just some sort of insight or some um, that could just tell us what's going to happen, right? And how a team is going to react. Just tell us just, what's going to happen. I just want to know. The, <laughs> that's the motto. Right. But game planning is something that we don't know how to really account for it in how we talk about football necessarily. And during the season, the Chiefs didn't necessarily need to stop much on well teams weren't really running that much against them well they didn't really have a chance right because they were down facing an offense like Mahomes and to your point of how we judge defense in the first place how can we judge a defense that didn't really have to defend that well during the season because their offense was so much better than opposing offenses so the Super Bowl is a totally different kind of game and I will I assume will be game planned in a much different way than previous games for either of these teams and I think as a first order kind of way to uh, approximate game planning is people look at the coach or the play caller, whoever's the guy that's actually doing the play calling. And, and these two are pretty evenly matched, I think most observers think. And so I don't know that there's an edge there. If there is an edge, it might be game planning on defense. And Salah, uh, Robert Salah, the defensive coordinator who was um, widely regarded as a head coaching candidate coming into this cycle and uh, didn't actually get any offers, which I think was a little disappointing for numerous reasons. But it, it, I think he is. He might be a key here if he's able to scheme uh, his def- his team into uh, taking advantage of uh, Patrick Mahomes in a way that makes him think or actually makes him scramble. Um, you know, th- those might be ways that they win as well. But but I-, I take your point, Sarah. I think that you know, especially us uh, on the outside that, that deal in numbers, the game planning aspect is something that coaches hold very very dear and tight. And when we get into that and start trying to say, here's what you should do, or here's what the numbers say, they're like, you rubes, you don't know, (laughs) you don't know how many things we have to juggle and all of the things that we're trying to set up ahead of time. We might waste two plays to set up a shot play in the third quarter. I think it's akin to bluffing a little bit in poker, you know, you just have to do it the right amount of time. And I think that that, that is a debate that I think is interesting. But uh, I think they're, for the most part, right. We don't have a firm understanding of game planning. You need to be a full-time coach to really do it well. And uh, from the outside, just terribly difficult. So I'm pretty excited to see how Mahomes does against this defense, obviously. He's been touted a lot as like the X factor in this game. Is there are there best and worst cases for Mahomes as he gets into the game and and um, starts to try to take apart this Niner defense? The the worst case has kind of already happened for Mahomes a couple times, and it's been in the playoffs. They've fallen behind by multiple scores. And they really had to get into a situation with their offense where they needed to be very efficient and make every single possession after that count. And I believe from the second half of the season through the playoffs, 
Um, they lead the NFL in points per drive. And that's just an incredible thing, uh, how efficient they are with their possessions, how, how few are the occasions in which they, they mess it up when they just give up and give away a possession. So I think, uh, you know, for the worst case, I think the only thing I can imagine is that Mahomes is confused. He, the pass rush is getting to him. He has to leave the pocket and he gets hurt. I mean, I mean, that, that other than that, they're going to score. And this is going to be um, a boat race in, in some way. Yeah, and I think the best case is that some of the matchups that you were talking about where they can kind of exploit uh, either Sherman being too slow to cover the fast guys or maybe get Kelsey you know, matched up with somebody who's too small to be able to handle him over the middle because they committed so much to trying to stop the deep ball. And again, Mahomes, one of the best deep passers in the league. Interesting chess match with San Francisco because they had, uh, I think they only allowed 13 completions of 20 or more yards all season long. That's an interesting chess match, but at the same time, Kansas City has guys that can kind of hurt you if you commit all in to trying to take away the deep ball in a way that I don't know how many other teams in the league can really say that they have that. So that might be the best case is like, we've done all this time talking about the San Francisco rushing. We've done all this time talking about San Francisco's pass defense, and if they just sort of shred that defense early, the rushing's not going to be a factor and Jimmy G is going to have to play from behind bad situations and then like I don't know how that's going to go for the 49ers. What other matchups are we looking forward to in the Super Bowl, Neil? Well, I'm a big fan of the two tight ends in general. We mentioned Kelsey but also uh, George Kittle. I think I wrote a story about Kittle and Kelsey, uh, you know, just being the two they had come off of last season. I think they both broke the all-time record for most um, yards by a tight end in a single season so I think that that's an interesting like as much as we're talking about Mahomes versus Garoppolo this is also like the two best tight ends in the league kind of going head to head at a position that also people talk about a lot as kind of an X factor like the the sort of piece on the chessboard that can sort of do the most different types of damage depending on the matchup when they retire they should definitely go into business together open Kittle a bar and Kelsey. Kittle and Kelsey <laughs> Kittle and perfect. Kelsey Incorporated yeah <laughs> and we talked a little bit about about the play callers as well and just how Shanahan and Reed will face off too. I think it's going to be a really interesting game. I'm I'm very excited to see these completely different styles take on each other. Yeah, me too. Like, uh, you know, normally you would just look at, you know, the disparity statistically we think at quarterback and, you know, sort of just like the raw, you know, power ratings of the team and be like, oh, you know, like Kansas City should be favored. But there are all these like interesting matchup things that might break in San Francisco's direction enough to keep it interesting. We don't know what's going to happen. And and all this talk, and we haven't mentioned the Kansas City running game, and, and probably for good reason, <laughs> but now watch what will happen. You know, yeah. they'll, they'll be 150 yards on the ground. They'll have two touchdowns on the ground. You know, it's just the, the nature of football. So I think that I'm hearing that both of you think the Chiefs are going to win this game. Give me your predictions. Your predictions. Well, I'll let you start, Josh, because <laughs> I have my own reasons for picking the Chiefs. <laughs> well, I mean, for all the reasons we outlined, I, I am picking the Chiefs. I think it'll actually be a lot uh, the spread should be closer to what uh, I think bigger than what 538 even thinks, what we think, um, certainly much bigger than what the market thinks. Um, and I just think it's because of that boat race aspect to this game and that the Chiefs are just so efficient uh, per drive. 
and I'm taking the Chiefs because I picked them in our Super Bowl draft <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, and Sarah took the 49ers. So this is really sure sort of a, a, a referendum between the two of it's us. It's all coming down to this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would take the Niners anyway. Um, maybe just because I'm going to double down on my long-held position because why not? But also I, I do think they will present a different kind of challenge to the Chiefs than the Chiefs have had really this year. I really like Pat Mahomes and I think he'll rise to the challenge, but I think the Niners might be able to overcome him a little bit. I don't think it, I think it might be a lower scoring game than we think it might be. I think that's the way that the Niners would have to do it to, to win. So I'm going to just set up the scenario to make my, my team come out on top. Yeah. Well, the over under on the game is 54 and a half, which is, uh, relatively high, I think, yeah. by, especially by like San Francisco game standards, maybe not Kansas City games. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, of course, the other the other big component of the Super Bowl, the one that we um, everyone talks about and is waiting for, is the halftime show. This year, it will feature Jennifer Lopez and Shakira. Josh, you've done a little research into halftime shows too. You're a very all you're a well rounded NFL analyst. <laughs> Anything NFL adjacent, yeah. Uh, it was actually I, I always look forward to it uh, coming into the Super Bowl because I get to look at something slightly different, um, and, and you know that lasts you know not too long uh, because. Uh, when you're researching this this article I just did on on the halftime show is basically a prop, and so one of these prop bets um, that the sportsbook put out is which song will Jennifer Lopez open her act with Love in the it. halftime show, and and they give us 13 songs to choose from, and so I kind of went through and I tried to figure out what factors go into choosing a opener for the halftime, and then you know how could we predict it? Turns out it's really hard to do, <laughs> um, but th- there are certain things like first of all, there's this theory of picking. <laughs> the, the the opener for a set um uh you know you want it to be upbeat but you don't want it to probably be your best song you want to save your best song for last i don't know how you define best could be most popular um at the same time these people who are chosen to be on the super bowl halftime show have lots and lots of good songs to choose from um what i did was i looked at the ones they'd opened with in the past and their non-super bowl shows that turned out to not be particularly predictive depending on the types of models we made um, none of which uh, I was able to get past our quantitative editor, Laura. In general, the thrust of it is that the songs that they choose are not going to be one of their top charting songs uh, to open with. They will have an upbeat tempo. Uh, they will have something that Spotify defines as danciness or something like that. The other part of it is, is in some cases, it has been a, a song that they have opened with before. Justin Timberlake, he opened with a new song. Uh, I think it's because he's a savvy kind of businessman. And so you don't get paid to to play in the Super Bowl, which is interesting. It's yeah, just I didn't a, know that oh, before this. That yeah. is interesting. Yeah, yeah, so it's just a prestige gig, and so you know, if you're if if you're sharp, I think that you would promote, you know, with your opening song, your new stuff, the stuff that you just released an album with, and it turns out that J Lo does have a new single out called Medicine. But you can't bet on it, unfortunately, which is a shame. Oh, that wasn't one of the 13? No. Oh, wow. No. So I, I think that one might be the actual favorite. Um, just because. Off the board. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and cause I think, uh, Jay Z's advising her on this. He's the one that put together the show for the NFL and, and got her and Shakira together. Um, so there's definitely some, uh, heavyweight, uh, business thinking going into this. And, uh, so medicine would be my pick if you could bet on it. But, uh, what it turned out was, uh, and, and hopefully you could read the article. There's a couple of the songs I think are, are good bets and I actually put money on them. So, so <laughs> I have, I part. have skin in yeah, the game. I do. I love that actually that you, um, you've, 
taking what you learned from this article and you're going to try to make money off it. Although also that's the uh, the other thing here is you can't make that oh, that much money off of these bets. So, oh, well. <laughs> so they're really just for fun. <laughs> no. And then the real bad part about it is, is that uh, there's probably lots of ways to game it and cheat. Um, the NFL actually hired 600 new people to be on the field for the rehearsals for two weeks. Maybe just hang around outside the field and become friends with one of those people. And then, uh, then, then you, then you have an absolute lock. That's, that's, that's the sharp money. <laughs> that definitely fits in the hot takedown pro cheating. Yeah, we are pro cheating. Mantra. And so I guess we're I like pro it. insider trading when it comes to <laughs> halftime show song selection. It just, it just makes sense. So which songs did you, uh, did you put your money on, Josh? So the, the two songs that, uh, my numbers roughly identified as, as, as potential openers were Get Right and If, If You Had My Love. And, um, get right, I think is probably the, the sharper play. Um, it has slightly lower odds, so you're not getting paid off as much. If you have my love, I think is a, a bigger dog. And, and really that's the way to approach this type of betting. You're not trying to be right. You're just trying to figure out where the sports book is wrong and where the probabilities might be off. And then you're playing that edge. And, um, there were Bovada, when I first started this process, you were able to bet on any of the 13 songs they had available. And then if none of them were played, it was a push. All bets are off. And that's actually a great bet for the better because you're not playing the field anymore. Oh, you know, yeah. you're not, it's not just the one song. You have the, the one song and then all other songs give you a push. They took it off the board and, uh, you know, fancy that. Now we know why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Smart of them, I guess. Well, I will say, uh, my, uh, I hope for if you had my love because I remember that one very, uh, fondly from the summer of 1999. <laughs> one of the greatest, uh, summers of all time. <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm rooting for for Get Right. I love that song. I uh, that song was on a, a a workout mix of mine for a long time. It's high energy, perfect to start the Super Bowl. So I'm they should have just asked that you. I know, yeah. right? Waiting for tonight, great option. On the floor, great option. Get loud, great option. Really, can you go wrong with J Lo? No, no, you can't. <laughs> So, Josh, since we have you in studio with us today, we thought we'd dive into more of the research you've been doing this year and what's exciting you about the NFL right now. I wanted to talk first about the NFL Big Data Bowl. Can you explain what that is and tell us a little bit about this year's winner? Yeah. So Michael Lopez is the director of data and analytics at the NFL. And what he started doing two years ago, or I guess this is the second year, was something called the Big Data Bowl, where he basically uh, supplies anyone who wants it with some data and asks them to solve a prediction problem to do with the NFL or do some type of an analysis with their new um, tracking data. And this year, what he did was he gave all participants uh, rushing plays, basically. So you would have a one still frame um, tracking data piece of information. So you could imagine it as if you're watching a, uh, a rushing play and you pause it right at the handoff. Um, so right at the moment the running back takes the handoff, you get the position of every player on the play and you get the relative velocities of every player. And then you get the outcome, which is how many yards the play went for. And so what you do is you get all this information for, I think it was for 13 weeks of the season, and they asked um, the competitors to to predict um, as best you can um, uh, what the outcome of each play would be. And then they turned in their work, and they used the last four weeks of the season to grade it. So it was actually the case that you couldn't game the system, you know. So it was it was a really nice setup. Um, and the winners were, they did just an outstanding job. They did, they were able to predict 
um, how well or how many yards a play was going to go for at the handoff with a ridiculous degree of accuracy. And I think that's a really interesting thing, a really interesting finding, just because they only had one frame of information. And we have, if you have access to all of the, the tracking data, you know, you could have see 10 frames per second, average play, you know, from snap to finish is probably four seconds. So you have many, many more frames than just that one to work on and, and to kind of hone your prediction. Um, and so I just think that's really interesting what, uh, what, what Mike Lopez has been able to do with it and, and, and perhaps portents for the future of what uh, analytics are able to do in, in, in football. Why do you think they focused on rushing when, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the league is sort of moving towards passing, you know, being more of a focus for teams? If I had to guess, and I don't know for certain, but it, it certainly seems this way from what Mike has said on Twitter, he wants to push back that analytics is only about passing or, or is only pro passing. And so he wanted to give, um, a, a, you know, he wanted to put analytics in a different light in the front office and to coaches. So it was really, I think there was a PR aspect to it as well to kind of shine the light on rushing. And, uh, and he did a good job at it. That's smart. I mean, I think you, for instance, have studied rushing and which plays work better than others. What is it about running the ball that has traditionally made it less efficient than passing? And are there ways that gap can be closed? Yeah, I think it's um, mainly the, the increased emphasis by teams to stop it. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, when we were talking about the Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, if you're desperately afraid of getting beat by something, you're going to make sure you, you're not beat by it. You know, there's that. There's also the aspect of when you pass down the field, you know, you can cover more ground with a ball quicker than you can with your legs. So I think there, there's, there's those two things that kind of explain the, the difference in efficiency. But I have also looked at I think it's fascinating. Running, running the ball is, is a super fun. I, my, my favorite players in football were always running backs. Um, you know, they used to touch the ball more than anyone else. It was um, you could you could see the plays better on television. There's it just there's so many reasons to love rush, running the ball. They're the, the super athletic uh, uh, players. But yeah, there are ways to be better at it. One of them I found was to actually pull pull blockers. So you you could take a guy from one side of the line, big old strong, you know, three hundred thirty pound guy, have him run across the other side and hit a guy. And typically that will give you more yards on a per play basis than just doing an outside zone. Um, unless you're Kyle Shanahan, apparently. And so I think there's lots more to learn about it. Um, uh, but I don't think that we're ever going to really be able to make it as efficient as passing simply because the league itself is so focused on stopping it. I think we do get um, analytics. People get dragged all the time by film lovers, I guess. Those people who are not the into tape analytics. Watchers. The tape watchers. Yeah. The grinders. Um, yeah. For, for being anti running game. But it's that's not that. It's not that you don't think that running the ball is important. It's it's that passing is more efficient. Running needs to be done in the right situations, right? And so like a, over the summer when Ezekiel Elliott was um, you know, was holding out for a better contract, the point wasn't that running backs are not important and you shouldn't have a running back. It's that you shouldn't commit so much of your salary to someone when that person is easily replaced by, say, undrafted <laughs> free agents, as we've seen with the Niners, right? So it's not about running not, isn't important. It's about how you build your team and what, where you put your resources, right? That's the issue, not don't ever run the ball. No, oh, yeah. No, it's, it's what's the balance? Like what, what, how, how much should you pass? How much should you run? And it's an open question when the gap in efficiency is so large. Um, and, and so making that point has required – 
you know, people to, uh, I would say push the envelope in the way they present the information. But, um, I, I'm also unapologetic about that. I mean, it, it, if, if you might say something like running backs don't matter and it gets people upset and they ask, what do you even mean by that? You obviously can't think that's true. And then you've had, you have a chance to have a conversation. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, you know, a hyperbole. It, it works. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the big data bowl is still pretty new to the NFL. Do you think we're going to see it have an impact on the league? Will it, will more front office management, you know, does that help the front offices get more comfortable with what analytics, what statisticians are trying to do? Yeah, 11 people last year were hired that presented or entrance and then actually got to present in uh, Indianapolis. So that's where the actual event is. Uh, the gala part of it is held in presentation. So yeah, it's definitely impacting the league. These, these folks are now in positions to advise teams. Um, how much teams are actually taking that information and applying it to the field is an open question. I think it's probably fairly rare. Um, there are teams like the Baltimore Ravens that do it a little more or actually quite a bit more than the rest of the league. But I think that's changing. And, uh, and so I do think, especially if you're interested in, in getting into uh, the sports analytics, um, these, these big data bowl entries are, are a great way to get at it. Yeah. And do you think maybe even like the Browns, the news that they had just signed the youngest GM in the league and Andrew Barry, he's only 32 and he has degrees from Harvard in both economics and computer science. And he played football. Is that sort of the the next wave of football management where you can kind of find people that are more receptive to analytics, but also have the kind of credentials among those who, you know, the crusty coaches and the tape grinders and stuff, the fact that they actually played? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think each of the people in the Browns organization at some point did actually play the game. Um, and I think that that is still... Even Paul De Podesta. Yep. You know, he, people don't think about that, especially since he came from the baseball background, but he played wide receiver, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they, they all each played. And, and I think, you know, so there is still that, that hurdle. You need to at least understand the game and to be able to prove to the people who play it every day that, uh, that, you, that, that you were able to do it at a certain level. I don't, I don't know that that hurdle is necessarily uh, necessary uh, in the long run, but certainly right now it helps. And, and Andrew Barry, at 32, being a GM in the National Football League is an incredible accomplishment. It's I mean, it's just, not – My goodness. Just more people making me feel yeah, what are we doing extremely old. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> But I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the biggest cheerleader of it. Uh, uh, the Browns might not be the best uh, location for uh, this kind of uh, experiment in, in youth and analytics. Again, you know, it'll be the second go through just because of their instability and their ownership. And they don't seem to want to commit to something for more than a year or two. Um, so I'm hopeful, but I'm also dubious that uh, whatever they're trying to plan inside that, that building is going to be given enough time to come to fruition. So I want to wrap up talking with you to just talk about something a little bit sillier. Eli Manning, uh, favorite 538 foil, I guess, favorite, <laughs> favorite target of, um, of, of all of what we write about. Eli Manning has retired. Does he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Everyone's looking at me <laughs> to start <laughs> off. I think that he should. This is my hot take on it is I do think he belongs in the Hall of Fame. I think my research uh, has sort of shown that on a per pass basis, he was basically an average quarterback, not the type of uh, person you would put into the uh, into halls of fame generally. Uh, but I think that there are there's the durability aspect of it. Uh, the fact that he is 
one of the all-time leaders in wins. I think he was 12th when we looked at him. Um, take that for what it will. QB wins is not always uh, the most popular uh, metric among stat heads, but I do think it speaks to he was the leader of pretty good teams over a very long period of time, one of the longest consecutive start streaks also of all time. And then he won two Super Bowls. And uh, I think every quarterback who has won two Super Bowls with one exception uh, is in the Hall of Fame. And so I think that that is going to be maybe the thing that puts him over the top. And for what it's worth, you look at something like uh, the new Hall of Fame monitor that Pro Football Reference rolled out. They have Eli uh, below the all-time average for Hall of Fame quarterbacks. He ranks 21st, uh, and this is based on their approximate value method. But I think that the gap is close enough that when you, if you do start adding in the sort of ring, you know, the intangible ring value onto things, it gets him closer to that Hall of Fame average. So are you are you saying that you think he should be, or that he will be? In the I Hall of definitely Fame? think he will be. Okay. I'm making the case, which is even tougher to make, that he should be. And and this is coming from the guy who wrote the quintessential piece on Eli Manning called he was all time average. I know, and that made me actually appreciate his career more just because it did underscore the the durability and just the sheer you know presence of him being there and and winning a lot of games over a long period of time if we're talking about the hall of fame in addition to being sort of honoring great players talking about the history of the game the the two upsets that he engineered against the patriots are arguably the two biggest upsets i mean you throw super bowl three with the the joe namath and the jets in there in super bowl history and i think that also has to be part of his story because it was the story of the league i mean he was the super bowl MVP of the team that took down a team that could potentially have been the best in NFL history. I can't argue with any of that. I think in terms of if you define the Hall of Fame as a place where you enshrine people and players who have made the league what it is, brought it to popularity, uh, you know, give it, given it its, its excitement, done things that are improbable. I mean, he certainly qualifies on those terms. But if you're if you're doing it in a way that you say was it consistent excellence, was he consistently uh, in the top three of the league in, in his position? You know, I, I don't. I think we all know the answers to those questions are no. And so for me, I am not like uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm a Hall of Fame maximalist. I, I don't care very much. Um, I think, you know, if we choose to enshrine and honor people, I think the more the better. Uh, I, th- I think exclusive clubs are, are pretty silly. If, if if anyone thinks you're deserving of the award, I think that's an award in itself. And, and I, I guess I, if I was a voter, I would take it much more seriously. But as just someone who has no real skin in the game, I, I kind of sit back and, and enjoy the debate. Um, but no, I, I don't think, I think at this point I wouldn't vote for him. Um, but I'm not upset if he, if he ever did get in. In um, some talk about Eli over the past week, uh, 538 copy editor and hot takedown contributor Maya Swedler uh, shared this tweet with me and Neil, someone saying, if Eli Manning is a Hall of Famer, so is Nick Foles. <laughs> that's a take. Uh, that's a that's a bad take. We should take down. I, th- I think I uh, even replied with my own impromptu hot takedown for that. So Nick Foles has 30 career wins, including the playoffs, and 32 career approximate value. Eli Manning has 125 career wins and 165 approximate value. I, I, I totally buy the argument of anyone who says Eli isn't a Hall of Famer, but he should be in before Nick Foles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if Nick Foles, maybe he'll, maybe uh, the Jaguars will do something uh, surprising next year. I think if Eli Manning gets inducted, I don't think, I think you have to also let in Frank Gore. How's that? 
I, I would think you should let him in anyway. Okay. Yeah. Just no. open the doors to the to the Canton uh, halls. <laughs> the best part of all of this is Neil's outing as an Eli Manning apologist. I know. I, I've got a card of his um, ta- tacked up on the wall of my cubicle. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us. Dodgers is super fun to talk about the NFL, and we still have the biggest the biggest game left to watch, so should be great. Can't wait. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week's rabbit hole is about one of my favorite sports and one of my favorite tournaments in that sport. So I love tennis. I love watching tennis. I adore the Australian Open. It's so fun in January to be able to, while you're cold, watch (laughs) warmth and tennis being played. I also really love the Australian Open because it's the perfect sport for a night owl because it's still on at like two in the morning. Live sports being played in the middle of the night is a really is a really great thing. So last week, Serena Williams lost, which was a bummer. At the same time that she was losing, Carolyn Wozniacki was losing. She was always a player I really liked. We wrote a story about her two years ago talking about whether she would be the best player to never win a slam. We wrote that like five days before she won the Australian Open. With her loss last week, she has now retired from tennis. Neil, you were looking more into her career. Yeah, I followed that uh, best player not to win a major streak that she had going. And so um, when she announced that she was going to retire after the Australian Open, I just wanted to do a dive into her career. So she ended her career with 624 matches won, 30 WTA titles, and $34 million in prize winnings, which is the fourth most ever. Uh, She also spent 71 total weeks at number one in the world rankings, which is the ninth most by any woman since the rankings debuted. And that was really what I wanted to focus on because her career was in so many ways defined by that number one in the world ranking, what it meant, what the expectations were that came with it, and ultimately how she was sort of able to you know, change the narrative on her career. So she first claimed the number one spot on October 11th, 2010, uh, surpassing Serena Williams after winning the China Open, uh, which was one of the six singles titles that she won that year, led the tour. And she was one of the rare players to ever become number one without first winning a Grand Slam. Only four players had ever done that before she did. But it was also just months after her 20th birthday. So her future still seemed bright. She seemed like she could be one of those prodigies that sort of contended over the next generation with Serena and, and people like that. Uh, so she spent the next 18 weeks as number one. She was briefly passed by Kim Kleisters in February 2011, but just for one week, Wozniacki reclaimed the top spot a week later, then held it for another 49 consecutive weeks, uh, so a period stretching from February 21st, 2011 to January 29th, 2012. By the end of that, she had been number one for 67 of the previous 68 weeks. And some of that was because Serena had a lot of health problems around that time. There was a void at the top of the women's game, and she was the one to fill it. But she wasn't winning majors. She wasn't filling the void in that manner. Uh, She wasn't even making the finals of majors. She lost twice in Grand Slam semifinals in 2011 and reached the quarters of the Aussie Open in 2012. And by that time, nobody had ever spent more total weeks at number one, 67 weeks, uh, before winning their first Grand Slam. So she really like owned this mantle of being the best player to never win a major. And it was actually sort of starting to weigh heavy on her career. 
People were asking, like, when is she actually going to win? At that exact moment, she just went into this career decline. She had finished each of the two previous years at number one in the end-of-year rankings. But then she dropped to 10th in 2012 and 2013. 8th in 2014, 17th in 2015, and then down to 19th in 2016. Uh, she made a U.S. Open final in 2014. Obviously, she lost. Uh, but otherwise, she really didn't get much closer to ending that drought. And it was starting to look really possible that she would go down in history as the best player never to win a major. Uh, but then she had this late career resurgence starting in 2017. That year, she made seven tournament finals. She won the Pan Pacific Open, and then she won the WTA finals over Venus Williams. And as a result of all that, she ended the calendar year of 2017 ranked number three in the world, which was her best year-ending ranking in a long time. And then she started out in 2018 by making the finals of the Auckland Open. And then in Australia, she made her third career Grand Slam final against top-seeded Simona Halep, and she finally won. So in an instant, she went from holding very unfortunate historical distinction, the best player never to win a major, to making a different kind of history. So by reclaiming the top spot in the world rankings after winning the Australian Open on January 29th, 2018, she had returned to number one after a whopping 313 weeks after she had previously held the title and lost it in January 2012. That's the largest gap between stints at number one in the history of the women's game, surpassing the 265 weeks that Serena had spent between number one rankings from 2003 to 2008. And for the first time ever, that number one ranking wasn't a burden for her. It was actually an affirmation uh, of, of her sort of return to form. Now, it didn't last long. She dropped out of number one again after just four weeks, ended the year ranked third, and, and now she's retired. But her journey back to the top of the tennis world was, I think, one of the coolest redemption arcs in recent sports history and somebody that just seems like, you know, a genuinely good person. Uh, and so I wanted to highlight that and just wish her the best of luck in her next chapter. <laughs> she's always been a really interesting player to me because it was it was really a promise unfulfilled for a long time. But it's sort of the question of what do we find more important in sports? I mean, in a sport like tennis, winning the slams is the is the the main thing so much so that a lot of players they don't care about the rankings. They don't put in the work during the tour year to like in those smaller tournaments to build up the points to become number one. Like Serena really didn't, you know, she kind of broke that model. She didn't care about that at all. She wanted the slams. And that was something Wozniacki was kind of criticized for in her career was sort of like, oh, you know, she's, she's grinding out these wins and these finals appearances and stuff in these tournaments that don't matter as much and almost like artificially inflating the, the world ranking, which I think is unfair because it is about playing, you know, tennis over a, a year-round calendar almost, you know, and, and kind of excelling over that amount of time has value too. Well, exactly. And it really does depend on what you find most important as either a fan or as a player, whether you want to just go out there day after day and play tennis and play tennis with, you know, take on all comers in any in any place you can, in any tournament you can, or whether those premier events are the ones you should, you know, be saving your body for. I mean, I think that's another interesting point as, you know, as we understand, you know, sports science a little bit better and understand the the toll that's, that sports takes on your body, whether you should be, you know, load managing better in tennis too, just like in the NBA and everywhere else. It makes me also think about uh, the, the perception of, you know, who is great in tennis is defined by the the Grand Slams. 
in some ways because those are the the ones that the casual fans and just sort of like the larger audience is watching and paying attention to. I mean, it's the same, you know, in in golf, you know, we're paying attention to the majors uh, there. I think all of these sort of year-round sports that have, you know, a, a tour, they have to, by definition, give more importance to prestige event and not every event can be prestigious but at the same time i do think that the split between how you do in those events and how you do in the the events that actually keep the tour going and afloat uh, on like a week-to-week basis is um you know sometimes tilted far too much toward the grand slam style events it's cool to see from Caroline Wozniacki that she did that and she had this long-ish career in tennis and and playing that the way she wanted to and then did get that crowning slam. So she kind of got the best of, of both worlds at the end. Would you rather be the best player to uh, to never win a slam or the worst player to win a slam? That's a little bit of an Ooh. Eli Manning question uh, in some ways. You know, he is the he's the anti-Caroline Wozniacki. <laughs> well, I, I teared up at Caroline Wozniacki's speech. I I'm, I didn't tear up when Eli Manning left the field. For, uh, I guarantee you there were a lot of Giants fans who did that. Sure. I'm sure that's true. All right. I think that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate rate the show and helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Josh, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>